Uh, just a, a little instruction before we get going here, and that is uh, <clears throat> because we're taping this, I want to repeat the question back uh, to the camera, and that requires me understanding the question, <laughs> and also being short enough so that my dwindling capacity to retain memory, and uh, I can uh, recall it. So try to uh, let your questions be concise, if you could. Uh, and so uh, that you can ask about anything. Just try to get them a little more compact uh, than a run-on. Okay? So whatever you'd like to ask, I'm open to... Yes. Uh, that's a very good question. Uh, uh, talk about the resilience of uh, cultivating resilience in relationship to the ongoing losses. <clears throat> You're the second person this evening that has mentioned uh, grief. And uh, so let me just talk a little bit about it. I'll try not to have it take the whole 45 minutes. <laughs> but it could easily do so. So, uh, I mean, if we live, we're going to live in the midst of loss, aren't we? Uh, it's, a, it's, a, um, it's just one of the facts that, about life. And yet each loss seems to take a kind of toll on us in some way. And uh, if, we, if we examine what that toll is, it's the sense that uh, something is being whittled away from us, something is being taken uh, that was at some point very precious it could be a person, or it could be an experience, it could be anything, really. <clears throat> and uh, it seems to take a kind of ongoing... Uh, it can, uh, if it isn't offset with some uh, degree of, uh, of new experiences coming in, it can lead to a kind of hopeless despair, sort of a... A, a kind of a burden that life is taking upon us. <clears throat> and uh, if we aren't very clear, and I mean this seriously, uh, there can be a kind of, kind of an attitude that it takes. Almost, one, we can feel deserving of the burden. And the other is that we start locking in a kind of perception of ourselves being uh, grief-stricken or uh, life taking its toll upon us and, and, a, and an accumulated attitude that associates with that, with that, uh, that sense. And uh, then it can form itself into a kind of script for us. Uh, and then we can, it can also be a self-fulfilling prophecy in the sense that you'll start looking or leaning or regarding life from the sense of loss that's incur- occurred, not seeing... Uh, the other side, the births that are also happening, because when there's a loss, there's also a birth by definition. Something new is is arising. That something new may be uh, just the loss of what you've had as the old. But there's always something new that comes with a loss. And, and if that doesn't refresh us, if we don't also connect with the birthing, the birthing process, then 
uh, I, I've seen it, uh, a kind of cynicism can build up that sort of pre-programs itself for the inevitability of the next footfall. And uh, you talk about resilience, and I wouldn't so speak about it so much in that way as I would speak about it as, as, as offsetting what you're seeing with the sense of something new arising, the new opportunity that's arising. Yes, there's the grief of the loss, but there's also the, the um, opportunity of the new. Uh, and uh, if we are uh, aware enough in those moments of loss, you can really get a sense that uh, in, if, it, if, the, if the flooding of the emotion of the loss of grief, of bereavement doesn't set in immediately, you can get a, a real sense of something opening there that is very hopeful, uh, has a new, offers a new perspective, a lightening of the load in some way. Uh, and so I would encourage us to incline our mind towards balancing the perspective. Now, that doesn't in any way uh, mean that we shouldn't grieve fully the loss we're having or try to just make ourselves smiley and, and see the good side of life and optimism. That's not what I'm saying at all. <clears throat> uh, in fact, we have to fully grieve the losses we incur uh, and really what grief is said in a sentence or two is that the way life is isn't meeting the expectations of what we had. And the distance between what we had and what is now available, that distance is the grieving process. We have to move this hand parallel to that hand so that those two join. So that now the expectation of what we have is what we live for. Uh, and that can take some time uh, and often emotional uh, prolonged, depending upon the nature of the relationship, it can be prolonged uh, grief. But that need not take us away from the opportunity that I'm also encouraging. That sense that even with the loss being what it is, is something... what. What new, what, what new expectation, not expectation, what new circumstances, what new opening is arising in the middle of this grief? It may be the grief process itself, which is now becoming an interesting form and opportunity. But there's always an opportunity. Something new is arising if we don't get too compelled by the story of what we're saying to ourselves about the loss. That there's a new way that the mind is forming that can encourage a kind of crisp listening and learning associated with it, which can be very helpful throughout the process uh, to just spend some time really uh, focused on. So it's not so much that we're building a sort of hardened shell to get through life with all the toils that it's taking, but to really see that with the death of something old, there's a rising of something new, and even with the loss and the burden of grief that seems so emotionally uh, dense, uh, there can still be a learning, a, uh, a lightness, and an interest that's going on throughout life. That the burden itself does not have to dilute that sense 
of interest that we have in life. Yes. And to your what? My relatively new your relatively new practice. And I just thought, um, if you could just explain a little bit more about effort or rather not having effort in relation to practice. So the question is, uh, she says her, her, her uh, practice is relatively new and she's trying to live, embody the practices I'm teaching it. And one of the confusing points is about effort or the lack of effort, or how to use effort, which is, a, is going to be uh, hard for someone who is new into practice. In fact, so uh, rather than listening to what I say about effort or the lack of effort, I would put in as much effort that you think is necessary to follow the instructions that you think are important for you to hear. So if the instructions that you're currently hearing is placing your attention upon the breath, early on that requires a lot of effort to do that, or it seems to, doesn't it? It's hard work to keep bringing your attention back. So at that point, what I would encourage you to do is, is put forth the determined uh, response that meets, um, meets the practice as it's being instructed, but also to have in the back of your mind somewhere, <clears throat> you know, uh, this question of effort not to let it slip out entirely, even though you're putting forth a lot of energy uh, to regain a, a contact with your breath. <clears throat> but just a question, uh, um, at other times when practice becomes a little easier, a little more self-maintaining, a little uh, where your breath becomes uh, much more available to you, <clears throat> then you can start just, you know, what's the role of effort here in my practice? What what role does it play? And from that point of view, which could be a considerable time out from your beginning instructions, uh, you'll look new upon what the definition of effort is. And you'll even see the early effort that you made that had to be made. You'll see that uh, something was going on there that was very confusing and uh, disorienting to you. You didn't completely understand what was happening back then, but you had to do it. And now as the practice has moved perhaps uh, some distance away from that sense of newly starting, you're beginning to get a different sense of the imposition that effort has upon things, not the, not the, not the uh, uh, how it enhances something, but how it diminishes something. So there seems to be an interference that effort creates it's like uh, you know, wanting to tune in your, your radio station, but you're always at the dials, twisting and turning and trying to get it even. You know, in, in doing so, you're off the mark as much as you're on the mark. You know, there's always this fuzzy that you're, and you're always trying to get it a little more exact and all of that sort of thing. And it just, uh, it, it's, you start realizing that uh, there can be a way that we lean into the practice to its own detriment, right? So just, just to have that back there as a consideration at some point. So especially even early on, you can start seeing when you get very tense and tight in yourself, when you have the uh, emotional response of 
you know, that you can't do it or that you're failing in it and you're bringing as much effort and stress in that effort to be present to your body or whatever it is that you're watching, that that isn't really helpful to the watching itself. Even early on you can see that the stress, the tension, right, that isn't very helpful in being actually able to see or be present to what it is that you're pointing your attention toward. See, even at that level you can begin to sense that maybe relaxation is a better response to begin this practice rather than the tension. And that starts a whole series of investigative uh, inquiries and looking that will determine your, the role effort has to play in the accompanying tension that has no role to play. And then you say, you come to the point where, so, so relaxation is really the guidance system here. How much effort does it take to be relaxed? Well, it takes the effort to release tension. It doesn't take the, some additional effort to be relaxed. It takes, it, if you're holding something, relaxation is the releasing of that something, not grabbing and tightening your fist around it more, right? What you're doing is releasing tension when you relax. You're not doing something to yourself in order to be relaxed. You're releasing something you've already done. You think, oh, so that makes sense that there's a sense of releasing something that has kept me, that keeps me from the breath, which makes the breath much more inviting and much more, much closer when I'm not forcing myself towards it. Okay, so that's just, I would just work with those different ways of looking at it. And so your question is a good one. Keep the inquiry, the interest in it, and at the same time put forth whatever effort you feel is necessary to meet the objective of the practice, which early on is just to steady your attention and settle it on an object. It's, it's its own, has its own uh, value in being able to do that. And then just keep, from there, just keep uh, readdressing the subject at every level. Good. Yeah. Don't get impatient. <laughs> Muffet. Um, uh, you you've talked about turning uh, turning towards the difficult, um, and I thought that I didn't really need to do that because I'm uh, especially good at looking at the mistakes and difficulty and going over and over about them. And then recently, I kind of dawned on me that that wasn't what you were saying, and um, just looking for when you go into suffering rather than repeating painful episodes or mistakes from childhood or whatever, that um, how do you feel the ouch of suffering in a way that is the right way or a healthy way? <laughs> okay, that's it. Uh, so uh, the uh, <clears throat> question is, you know, moving into the difficult uh, there's a way to move into the difficult that just reinforces an old conditioned pattern of being mistake driven and looking again at all the mistakes we've made in our life and here's another one as opposed to going into the difficult that actually helps relieve the suffering that it's supposed to do. Uh, and I think you've put your finger on something that's very important and that is that 
going into the difficult can work as much against us as for us unless we have a very clear understanding of what we're doing in this difficult experience, within this difficult experience. Because set back inside ourselves is a pattern that's just waiting to be evoked, which is the old pattern of our life, usually around some sense of, of being a mistake or being inadequate or just the failure of being able to do or meet life with any success. <clears throat> and that gets activated when we have something difficult in our practice. We're, that's the conditions that activate a kind of up, a rising up of a sense of failure. So here's something else I can't do. I can't cure this either. And we can spin out in that, and that just reconditions in the old pattern of our sense of failure. So that's not helpful, and that's not what I'm really meaning when I say going into the difficult. Now let me just stop and pause and just explore what we mean by the difficult and its value. Because what I see in many people, even old experienced sitters, is that that's not what their life is about at all. They hear it, we hear it, but when the person starts moving next to us or sneezing or doing something that's irritating, we get irritated. We don't accommodate that at all. We don't allow ourselves to, uh, a sense of resolving that difficulty. We object to it and we find a certain tension arising between ourselves and the person who's wiggling next to us. And I find that people haven't practiced it sufficiently. We haven't you have to practice this thing. You have to make it so that your conditioned response is not to resist the difficult and turn away from it, but to actually move towards it and open it. And that can only happen when we're properly oriented, when we have practiced embodied action with the difficult. And you can spend years, you can spend your entire meditation practice moving in just the opposite direction of that where we suddenly think that meditation is about being quiet, being serene, being calm, not being disturbed, not being upset. And we hear all the, you know, we look at the Buddha's half smile and we think, God, you know, he's not upset. He's not, you know, that's the way I want to be. And so the way the mind logics its way through what the Buddha smile must mean in relationship to my life is to make it more pleasant and more more less burdensome and less difficult. No, no, no. Uh, I'm reminded, uh, I'm on the board of uh, the Insight Meditation Center in Massachusetts and they're moving to have single rooms for everybody. And one of the first things when they were proposing that to the board the first thing that came to my mind is, where's the rub? If everybody has a single room, where's the rub? You see, because we can make this thing so agreeable, the environment so agreeable, that we've, 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 you walk into the Buddhist smile, right? And you think, oh, I'm here now. You know, I've, I'm, there's nothing disagreeable in the environment. Everything is so... But that's not the point. Especially when you're in the middle of your life, like all of you are, with family, job, relationship, loneliness, whatever you're dealing with, you can't look for the serenity of the Buddhist smile in that household. 
if your household's like mine, you have to move into the difficult because it's coming at you all the time. So what does it mean to move into the difficult, you see? And why? Well, because the difficult is the place that we're objecting. We're object, I object to this. We're the part of us, our mental frame of reference for the moment, for the sensation, for the experience at hand is, this is not okay with me. I'm not, this is not okay that this person is moving next to me. Now, the, what happens in that moment of disagreement is the Dharma is, is separating you out. You, mental, the mental you, which thinks you know better than what reality is offering, is arguing with what, with what's reality, with what reality is offering. That argument <laughs> is difficult, yes, but it's the way, it's the formation of suffering. It is the way suffering arises. Instead of just surrendering to the environment of somebody moving, in which there's no difficult, there's a diff, it's not pleasant, but there isn't any resistance to it. And so there's no person forming him or herself out and arguing with. There's just the situation that's arising, and that's the end of suffering, as opposed to trying to make my environment serene enough so that I can have the smile of the Buddha as my own, which means to eliminate the guy next to me because I can't do it with him in my picture. You see the difference between those? Now you gotta, this is essential, okay? It's also 101. When, When I brought the fundamentals of the Dharma in, it was one of the first talks I gave because I knew most people weren't getting it. That even though we talk about it constantly, I can see when the door opens and cold air comes in and some new, you know, somebody is coming in late to the sitting, I can look, I look this way and I see all of you. And you're going... <laughs> 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 and so I know there's something there that needs to be tweaked. Okay? So the examination, and uh, may I say, um, after one more fundamental talk next week that has to do with this topic, embodied action, believe it or not, so it's an appropriate question. After that, we're going to start uh, dependent origination, which is how the sense of self forms in relationship to the experiences. It forms around the experiences as a calcification or an objection to it, and that leads to the whole sense of, of life as we know it, separate from, resistant to, argumentative with, on and on. <clears throat> this is very subtle, but very important, that when we're in the middle of something that is difficult, we can best hear our argument about life in that moment, because it's difficult. We don't like it. When everything is serene, it's harder to hear the argument that we're bringing forth. We're still bringing forth an argument even in serenity. But it sounds like this. Oh, this is so nice. I want it to last. This is great. God, if this would just go on, my practice would be perfect. And that's an argument for its continuation. And it won't continue. And so 
there's going to be a moment of difficulty there. You see? So it goes both with, towards the pleasant and towards the unpleasant. But it's easy, more easily heard in the unpleasant where we're digging in our heels and we're just coming down, pounding our fists. Here's the problem. We like that position. We like pounding our fists because for that moment in which, in which we are fist pounding, we feel our own power. And mostly we're in a culture in which we are powerless. <laughs> like the fiscal cliff culture. <laughs> when you just sit and watch yourself. <laughs> and so the sense of being in power, having some power, is a new experience and one that's very delightful to the egoic sense of ourselves in which we can feel like we're on top of the world here, you know, because through my through my objection, I can feel myself. I can feel who I am. I can feel my values. I can feel my purpose and intention in life. And that comes, also comes through the difficult, and that's what we like about the difficult, is it defines us so well. But in that definition is the very reason that we suffer. So there's a lot to learn in that mix about the nature of ourselves arising and the suffering that comes from that and the accompanying resistance and argument that we have to reality and the suffering that comes from that and on and on. Okay? So you get more of that next week. This is something, you'll hear it and then you've got to hear it again and again and again, most of us, because it's like it's such a different way to live than how we have conditioned ourselves to live that we hear it, we kind of feel like we get it, and then we step outside and a horn honks at us and we get, <clears throat> all of a sudden we're all upset or it's too cold. Why I come out on a night like this? And, you know, it's all this constant argument. And we haven't practiced sufficiently the alternative way of being. Yes. I'm working on being um, more um, focused earlier on. I don't know how to say that without sounding like I'm trying to control my practice, but um, in a you know, day-to-day basis, I give myself a time frame, and that time frame doesn't always work for me. So sometimes I, things arise, and I feel very cared for, and it helps me on my day. But other times, it doesn't happen until like the end of the time. And if I have ten minutes, I'll just. <coughs> Are you talking about when, while you're sitting? While I'm sitting. While you're sitting, some, sometimes things come up that you, you can't finish or complete in the time that's allotted within yeah. your sitting? Just, yeah, exactly. Uh-huh, okay. But it, it doesn't lead to um, you know, feeling cared for through my day. Right. Like, I've got to get to that. It's disturbing. Right. Okay, so... Um, <laughs> In everyone sitting, there'll be a kind of a processing that goes on uh, for much of it in which things that uh, are just below the level of awareness will percolate up and you'll forget that you needed to do that or 
you know, an old feeling about some unresolved issue will arise and you feel like you really need to be doing something about that as well. Uh, and so, uh, <clears throat> depending upon your experience level in sitting, you can make your whole sitting kind of a, th a thought process around some of these things that are arising just below the surface of consciousness and, and feeling like, okay, I've got to have a way forward out of this predicament. And it can kind of be a, a problem-solving venture for the 30 minutes you're in there. And some of the problems don't seem to resolve themselves because you don't have sufficient time to do that or they're unresolvable given that you're sitting down and not addressing the problem directly. So gently said, that really isn't what we're doing while we're sitting. It's going to happen and many of us are going to find ourselves adrift in that busyness. But we're, we, what we're doing when we're sitting is we are allowing what is surfacing to arise without having to interact with it or to think about it at all. Or simply, it's the difference between uh, it's, it's like the soup is boiling and you just take the pot and you take the top off and you just let it boil. Smoke comes out, a carrot floats here and you know it's like that. You just, just, that's meditation. You're not keeping any pressure on it by keeping the pot or it's not a pressure cooker. You're simply just whatever is in there, you're allowing the space for it to be there and percolate. To the sense of me, the egoic sense of me, it feels as if you are passing up an opportunity to work on some real unresolved issues. That's what it feels like inside to you. God, if I need to spend more time thinking about that. As best as you can, let those impulses go. And just let the feelings be felt. Don't deny anything. Just don't try to resolve anything. Don't try to bring a resolution to anything, to an image, to an expectation, to an unresolved regret, any memory work, nothing. Just let all of that be seen and passed through, like water through a pipe. What good is that, you might ask? How does that help me, you might ask? It's, ultimately, it's very hard to answer this satisfactory. <laughs> I mean, the way I answer it may not... You have to have some faith that the, that the way we've been working life, trying to solve problems and resolve and think about things more and more, is lacks something and it adds tension it adds uh, effort it adds stress it, I mean there's a whole thing is just kind of galvanized by our internal reactions that perpetuate the problem and then we have to go and resolve it on and on the question that we have to begin to invite is is there a way that resolves all of this 
without the normal way that we have sought solutions. If I feel the emotion without believing in the narrative of the emotion, of what I've got to do about the emotion, maybe a certain clarity or discernment comes that would not have come if I got embroiled in thinking about what, how to resolve this emotion in terms of action or interaction in the future. Maybe there is a resolution to the problem that doesn't require more thinking about it. You go, yeah. Now, so let me, let me show you ultimately what we're, what we're doing, spiritual work. When we invest in form by our thoughts about form, we're reinforcing the forms of the world. When we say we have an emotion and the emotion is the result of some unresolved problem and I invest more and more into the solution of that problem, I'm investing more and more energy into the forms and and tensions within the world. That keeps us in the world as we have known the world to be, and it keeps us as ourselves in the world as we have known ourselves to be. That is the point of spirituality, is to see if there is something that we're missing within the manifestation of ourself that we will never see if we keep inviting the same strategies forth. What if there is a sense of presence, if I don't get involved in all of this continual chatter about everything in my life, what if I just stop? In that stopping, a new, something else is felt. Some other dimension of ourself comes in. The dimension of presence, of awareness. We are no longer investing in ourselves as formulated. We're now divesting from the need to continue that narrative and finding what is truly there when we're quiet. The divesting of ourselves from form and the investing of ourselves into the formless is the movement from the mundane to the sacred. That's what meditation is meant to do. Not to, not to make our lives more comfortable, not to problem solve our way through the messes that we've created, not to resolve our emotional difficulty with justifications of why we're feeling this, not to further the blames of the world that the mind is ever ready to do by projecting out from those emotions and claiming that you're making me angry. All of that just continues the mess we're in. You see? So we have to clean the board. Say, okay, let's, okay, that does not work. Erase the board. Let's start here with a blank slate. Is there another way? Is there another way? It has to come from your intention to ask that question. It comes, the energy comes for that other way to be seen from your intention to discover it. 
That's how it comes. That's the invitation. That's the invitation that allows it to arise. It will never arise as long as you continue to use your meditation as you use your life. Problem solving. It won't come. You'll get some resolution of your problem. You'll get some satisfaction that you're clearer about the nature of your problem. You may even get some insight into the right action you need to take. But you will not switch to the sacred. You will not feel the accompanying presence. You won't. It will, it will just be a continuation of your theme of your life at a more subtle level. This is a paradigm switch. That's why so few people come. I, I'm sometimes absolutely amazed at what people invest in as important in this life. The books that people think are the most important books, the philosophies that people think are the most important, and all of this is missed completely. When you realize the possibility of transforming your life, there's nothing more important than this. Nothing take precedence over this. But to do that, you have to have come to the end of the old paradigm of trying to work your life out in your current, within your current strategies for some sense of contentment that you'll never find for more than a moment. That's what we're doing. And it begins, the rehearsal of that begins when you sit down and formally sit in meditation. You're rehearsing what you believe spirituality to be about when you sit down. Because that's as close to the sacred as most of your day will allow, giving the activity level of most of your day. This is your rehearsal. You sit down, and that 30 minutes, 40 minutes, hour, or however long you sit, has to be so finely tuned to your heart's calling that you know what the point of your life is for the rest of the 23 and a half hours that you're alive. If that slips by, how are you going to find it? How are you going to connect with it? How are you going to align yourself with it? This is really the strength of the formal meditation, is it gives us repose. It gives us a chance where hopefully children aren't coming around and, you know, you just have this time. And that time is so preciously, is so precious partially because it can align us to the exactitude of what we, of the purpose and intent of what the meditation is supposed to allow for us. But if we sit there and go, oh, no, no, God, no, 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 oh, my God, wait till I see him again. Oh, my God. You get up and that's what your life looks like. Oh, I see him now and I'm going to tell him and you and that's what it looks like. <laughs> so hopefully, you see, we work together in this. You come here and together we try to tune ourselves to that essence of what, of the spiritual in us of the sacred. And then we go out, homework is given, we go out and then we try to live in accordance with that and then it gets all fuzzy, it gets wavery, 
narrative comes back in, so we come back in again the next week, and we have a new homework assignment, a new talk, or a discussion group, or the sittings that we do throughout the day, or we take a retreat. All of that is an encouragement on ourselves to release the bondage we're in and invest in something that is truly available for us. So I don't mean in any way to uh, discourage anyone sitting, but if we aren't, let's fine tune ourselves here a little bit. Let's just, okay. This requires a strong intentionality. The old New Year's resolutions, probably when they first began in the dark ages, had to do something with something about intentionality for our life. And it got lost in self-resolves. I'm going to lose 20 pounds, you know, or something, which never works because... But this can work. This can work. That's why it's so important to come together, to learn from each other, to learn the strategies which the person next to you is using to tune and fine-tune their life in accordance with this, to learn from all of us. And that's also why there's so few, besides my personality, <laughs> which holds out a lot of people. But it's also because it's so difficult and because it's so, the exposure is so raw. And the questions we ask are so uh, potentially disastrous. I was reading a quote last week from, from Christ uh, in, I think it's the Gospel of St. Thomas. He says, when you see the truth, what you see will, I can't remember, will disturb you. Right. And after you've been disturbed, you'll be delighted. So most of us don't want to be disturbed. And so we don't look beyond the uh, surface level. It's interesting. I, I mean, whenever something of great force and momentum arises, like... Uh, a Christ's birth, we have to offset the potential effect that has on us by bringing up an equally or a, a larger and more gigantum titan and have it stand alongside. And Christmas, it's Santa Claus, who's magical, as big as Christ. Good Lord. <laughs> Yeah, and so if we set that, then we can go this way, and we don't have to bother ourselves with this stuff. You see, so just you can you can watch it. Well, if it's not Christmas, it's the Easter Bunny. <laughs> it's just very interesting. We get, mentally we need something to offset uh, the difficult that the. Uh, Annoyance. Annoyance? What, what, what did you say? 
disturbance, the disturbance of where this will take us. Yeah. I think one of the lines, and I don't know if it comes from scripture, is the truth will set you free, but first it will make you miserable. miserable. Yeah. Um, I have, well, I'll ask a question about spirituality, because I struggle with um, spirituality is such kind of a woo woo kind of out there word. Can be. Can I define what I mean by spirituality? I will take. I will say nothing. Now, are you sufficiently disturbed? You see the disturbance? To be truly quiet is the most disturbing thing. And yet that's where everything lies. This is a direct this is a direct transmission. It's always a direct transmission. It has to be. We'll look anywhere we can look but into the face of stillness. Because it's the most disturbing thing. First you have to figure, why is it the most disturbing? What, what is it about stillness that's so disturbing? All it is is absolutely quiet. Why would that be so disturbing? Do you feel its disturbance? You see, if you still, if you, if you, if you keep yourself in the picture, it's not disturbing at all. Because now I'll be quiet. Now you've got the best of both worlds. You've got yourself, and then you've got what you think is quiet. But true quiet, you have to eliminate yourself in order to fully abide within. And that's where the disturbance comes. And so why are we saying, well, will you please tell me about the sacred? Well, that would, that would do a thing. It would keep you from being disturbed. So please tell me about the sacred so that I won't be disturbed. Well, that's not the way here, you see. That's, that's, not, that's not, this is a mystical path. This is a path of actual realization for ourselves. And so it's not a path of philosophy or a path of, of thought, really. That's how close we are, though. Just to show you, to show all of us, 
how close this thing is. How much of our time we spend just above surface level, where the surface tension can, you know, just keep us, you know, so the, we, the oscilloscope will show some waves on it. So there's some kind of pattern there. So we can, you know, please tell me where the sacred is. Do I look this way? Do I look that way? Should I go this way? Should I go that way? How many practices should I do? Should I sit for a half hour? Should I sit for 45 minutes? What should I do when I sit? Should I think about my problems? What should I do? I think that's enough for this evening. <laughs> Can we sit for a minute or two? So if your practice disturbs you, it's a good thing. If you feel sometimes a sense of trepidation, where you're not in control of it, it's taking you to areas that you don't seem to have the power to control. When seen in light of the true direction, that's a good thing. If it disturbs you to the point where it causes a greater sense of entrenchment or a deep abiding anxiety, then it's not a good thing. Then you need to come and see me or some other person to work work through some of that. but you won't get out of it without being disturbed. Okay, all good.